We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. So yeah, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. Um, we're talking Sunday. Wait, are we talking about Israel? Yes. Israel, uh, but, but also we could talk about it. Uh, right, uh, yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah. So what is the right way to contextualize? And obviously it's still very early in terms of our understanding, but what exactly happened in the last few days? I mean, Hamas attacked Israel. They, um, there was like a barrier. They broke through the barrier. I think they used, um, they used drones to, to sort of bomb the, uh, the security stuff at the barrier, which is very important because I guess drones are taking over warfare. And that's a thing that people, anyone who has not realized that drones are taking over warfare needs to realize that now because it has completely changed the game. You know, Israel has all these expensive tanks and planes, which they're very, very good at using. And those may now be obsolete because of drones, as we've seen in the Ukraine war. So Hamas jumps into um, Israel and then like they, they sent a bunch of like guys on paragliders. Um, they just like <laughs> basically flew on little gliders uh, and then they dropped into a rave and they shot like 300 people at a rave. It is like the more. equivalent of like Burning Man or Coachella or something. Yeah. Imagine just like Coachella, but then like a bunch of paratroopers drop into Coachella and just kill everybody. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty messed up. It's like... um one wonders, like, how does that further the cause of Palestinian liberation? You know, how, how do you, are, are you going to end the occupation because you killed a music festival? Like, what, what, what is the point of that? Like, um, yeah, it's very, it does not seem particularly constructive. I mean, like, you know, you can say, oh, well, you have a, a right to fight a war against occupation, but like, you know, shooting up a music festival intentionally is pretty bad. You know, even even unintentionally, it's pretty bad. You know, in America, we um, uh, we bombed a wedding. Remember in the in Afghanistan? No, I don't remember. Was this during the war? Um, this yes, this was during the war. Uh, it was just we thought there was an Al Qaeda guy there, maybe, and so we just we didn't know there was a wedding, and so we just hit it with a you know drone strike, and we killed quite a few people at that wedding. Like we killed the whole wedding, basically. It was very much like in, yeah. And, and we were like, sorry, but you know, we, uh, we didn't mean to kill a wedding. Had we known there was a wedding, we wouldn't have like done that anyway. And we especially wouldn't have just attacked a wedding just because we're like, well, we don't like you as a people, you know, you attacked us on nine 11. So we're just going to destroy your wedding because like we, you know, America wouldn't do that. It, it's bad to kill a wedding. But it would be really bad to kill a wedding intentionally, uh, just just for the point of of you know just killing people. Yeah, um, and that's uh, that's pretty bad. You know, we've seen Russia do a lot of stuff like that in Ukraine. We've seen them consistently target uh, hospitals and schools, so they consistently blast hospitals and schools to try to basically weaken Ukraine's uh, resolve. You know, weaken, break their will, break their spirit, weaken their 
courage to fight. It doesn't work. Of course, it just makes them matter and makes them fight more, which is, of course, what's going to happen with Israel. Israel is just going to get really mad because you killed their music festival. And they also sent some gunmen into like um, various towns, little towns around that area and just started shooting up town. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you know, Israel is just going to get mad and you're going to strengthen Israel's resolve to fight. And you're going to uh, worsen the image of Palestinians in the eyes of the world because they're like, okay, these guys are people who just go and just shoot up music festivals. Like that's not, that's not normal, even in war. Like yeah. that's not normal. And um, is 9-11 a, a, a fair comparison in terms of like what this means for the nation and perhaps the, um, or how they're inter how Israel is interpreting it and perhaps like the response to 9-11 was obviously, you know, very intense in terms of you know, we, you know, went to war over it and, uh, and Israel's, retaliation might be significant like what, what is, there, is that a it will be i you know i don't really i don't really know what they're gonna do um yeah there's not I, I think that that global like international pressure on israel to show restraint will be much less than in previous uh incidents you know previous incidents were mostly just hamas uh launching rockets at israel and um and then everyone would say well you have to show restraint show restraint and so but then um, this time, I mean, you, you send a bunch of guys in to shoot up a, a music festival. And also, they, they didn't just shoot it up. They, they took prisoners. And, and a lot of these prisoners are probably women who were taken off to be raped. And, and, you know, some of the prisoners taken were citizens of, like, the United States. There, there's, there's people now, there's, like, Americans who are at that rave who are now, like, in some, like, horrible sex dungeon in Hamas, like, areas. And, and you just, um, I mean, you, you cancel out the, any goodwill that... that you get right like you just show yourselves to be genocidal barbarians like no one likes you if you do things like that you know i mean only and and all the the people in the west who sort of have adopted palestinian liberation as their their cause uh you know leftists um are gonna look really bad because of this you see the new york dsa marching for palestinian liberation basically marching in support of uh, of hamas and cory bush released a thing uh you released a statement telling israel not to take military response to this at all and that just discredits uh those people you know it sort of shows that this ideology that they've kind of constructed for themselves the you know sort of new new leftist ideology that we've seen come to prominence in the last decade or so is has, has moral problems you know it's it's morally suspect and um and i think a lot of young people have really been turned on to that ideology through Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, and then they sort of got more extreme from there because Bernie Sanders is, you know, released a strong statement in support of Israel. Uh, but I think, you know, Bernie Sanders was sort of a gateway drug for, for a lot of young people who then sort of went to the hard stuff because, you know, we live in an internet dominated age and, uh, you know, people, people go for the hard stuff. They're, they style themselves like a communist revolutionary or a Nazi or something like that. And, and, uh, you know, when it comes to defending those beliefs in the street, only a very few mentally ill people are willing to go fight in the street for like, you know, white supremacy or something, right? Like you only see a few of those guys, very few, but then, um, and they all have screwed up lives and, and, you know, weird sex stuff going on and they're, they're bad, but there's only a few of them, right? There's, there's a small number, uh, like the Charlottesville guys. And then, um, and then on the left, you see the same thing, like the tankies. Are they, uh, you know, there's, there's few of those people, but, um, 
I think you're going to see that become more fringe. And, th and this isn't the first time that the, the kind of the new left has morally disgraced themselves in the face of an international incident. There's also uh, the Ukraine war. Um, they, like when Russia invaded Ukraine, liberals lined up behind Ukraine and were like, we support Ukraine fighting for freedom against Russia, blah, blah, blah. Um, leftists basically uh, blamed America, blamed NATO, and uh, and sort of made excuses for a right-wing dictatorship invading a, a neighboring country and conquering it. So that was very, it was just a very poor moral showing. I think that a lot of the these leftist uh, people live in a, uh, a communications bubble. They live in an online bubble where they can't see how repugnant they look to the majority of people and how much they're discrediting their their you know ideology that they've kind of patched together in the last 10 years. Yeah, on that point, it, it's fascinating. A, a lot of you know leftists and, and, and rightists, of course, supported um, Russia as as you talk uh, as you mentioned. Um, and there was this kind of, but a lot of people supported Ukraine, and there was this kind of this sort of narrative of, hey, the weaker country got invaded, or, or the good country got invaded. Whereas this time it's a bit more complicated. One because usually the leftist have tended to be you know often sympathetic with the Palestinian cause because. They, the Palestinian are the weaker. They're the underdog. Uh, yeah, they're the underdog. Exactly. That's yeah. a better way of putting it. And yeah. you do see, yeah, right. You, you see, you know, a lot of, um, you see a lot of liberals and leftists who are sympathetic to both Ukrainian and, uh, you, the Ukrainian and Palestinian causes. Exactly. Um, on the left, you see a division. You see a lot of people arguing. Uh, you see pro-Ukraine versus anti-Ukraine people. Um, and I think what you're going to see after this attack is the people who are pro-Ukraine have some sort of principles, they have some sort of conscience. They they go for the underdog instinctually. They don't like occupation and whatever, and um, they want they want freedom and national self determination, all those good things for Palestinians and for Ukraine. But then when they see, uh, you know, these people who who, um, you know, probably do represent Palestinians, but just executing these these massive atrocities. I think the fervor for the Palestinian cause will cool among the more reasonable elements of, of the left. Um, and then the unreasonable elements just sit all day dreaming of ethnic cleansing. You know, they, um, the, the, they're very, very, you know, bloodthirsty and power mad uh, from just being online too much. Yeah. Yeah. And the, um, the amount of deaths is still not entirely unknown. Uh, I, I saw somewhere people saying 600 people or, or, or something, it's, you know, been still counting. And that this is the biggest, someone uh, I read somewhere, this is the biggest uh, sort of amount of deaths in one day since the, since the Holocaust in Israel or, or something, or biggest attack. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if that's exactly true, but I, I just. Well, not since the Holocaust, because there was no Israel in the Holocaust, but uh, perhaps since one of the wars that Israel fought. Um, yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's a lot of people, you know. And Israel's only 10 million people. So, you know, per cap compared to the United States, it's 30x that, right? So yeah. it's, it's way bigger than 30x, that. right? So you take 600 times 30 is like, you know, 18,000. So yeah, but it's like, imagine if 18,000 Americans, that's like about, that. that's comparable to like um, the tsunami in Japan. So some people say that this is anything you, you, you wrote that, um, so w why the attack now um, and wh why the attack period? Um, of course, you know, there's always been, ongoing conflict, but this was the 50 year anniversary of the Yom Kippur war. And, um, you, you wrote about how this is perhaps an effort to torpedo the Israel Saudi, uh, alliance. 
why don't you unpack right. the dynamics there? A lot of people say this, um, and it looks like that effort has succeeded. Uh, over the last few decades, um, so, so when, when Israel was first established, the kind of Arab countries in the, era, in the area fought it very hard. Um, a lot of them sent troops to attack Israel. Uh, Iraq sent troops, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and all these places. And then um, and Israel uh, won, uh, defeated those um, attackers, but they still didn't recognize Israel. And so for, for many, many years, and Saudi Arabia still does not. And so then, but Israel started, so, sort of th those countries stopped uh, thinking that they were going to get rid of Israel. They, they got acclimated to the idea that Israel is a country that's going to be there forever. And they started, you know, Israel has this uh, pretty good economy, um, lots of tech businesses and, and other stuff. And, and basically these countries were like, okay, well, we could get Israeli investment cooperation. Uh, also, um, Saudi Arabia has been fighting basically a protracted cold war with Iran. So, um, Saudi Arabia and Iran do not get along. Uh, this, when, when Iran had the Iranian revolution, they sent a bunch of gunmen in and attacked the, uh, the Hajj, which is the holiest pilgrimage in Islam. Not a lot of people know that. Did you know that about this attack? Uh, no, I didn't know. Yeah. So, so they sent just a whole bunch of guys to like shoot up the Hajj. Like that's as, as Muslims, like imagine that's, that's just nuts. And of course, Americans weren't even paying attention at that point. This, now this would be like a massive world shaking event. If you just had a whole bunch of gunmen shoot up the Hajj and I forget how many people they killed. It was, it was quite a few. Um, but then, uh, then this started a cold war between Saudi Arabia and Iran and, um, and Israel sort of sided with the, the Sunni side with the Saudi Arabian side. Um, and of course, Egypt was also on that side, although Egypt has a slight rivalry with Saudi Arabia, but they were both, you know, they um, sort of anti, uh, Iran and UAE as well. And, um, and so after Saddam Hussein was very anti-Israel, but then after he was gone, so there was this, the other Arab countries like, okay, well, you know, we don't really care about Israel. So we'll just like, uh, give them recognition and, and, um, uh, you know, a formal peace treaty, because we were gonna, never going to fight them anyway, right? Egypt made peace with Israel back in the 70s. And, um, and then uh, Jordan as well. And then Syria sort of collapsed, I guess. Uh, but basically, what happened was that Iran uh, kind of picked up this torch of anti Israel uh, stuff after, um, after uh, the Arab countries kind of dropped it, right? Like in the in the Yom Kippur War and the Six Day War and the 1948 War, the, the people attacking Israel were like Syria, Egypt, uh, with some help from like Iraq or whoever, uh, but mostly Syria and Egypt. Um, those guys dropped the ball, right? Those guys are not going to attack Israel anymore. Israel kicked their butts. Uh, so then, um, and then, and then Saudi Arabia and UAE, they don't care, you know, and Egypt no longer cares. And so, um, so, uh, Iran comes in and they want legitimacy in the Muslim world. They want, uh, you know, leadership over the Middle East. They're, uh, they're in this protracted struggle with Saudi Arabia for leadership of the Middle East and maybe even of the broader Muslim world, uh, although they really concentrate on the Middle East. Iran, um, and so Iran basically, ethnically, Iran is a, is a great minority, right? Most of the, the other, so, so most of the, the people in Iran are Persian, ethnically. They're not Arab. Um, Americans don't necessarily know that difference, but it's an important difference. Um, 
there's a lot of you know old enmity and suspicion there uh, racially and so the the um but there's a lot of uh, shia arabs so iraq is dominated by shia arabs um uh syria has this elite class that's the uh the alawites which are sort of like you know similar to, they're sort of like seventh day adventist shia or something you know or or something like that it's kind of shia and then um and then the shia in like bahrain and so so there's all these shia arabs and in order to sort of get all those guys on their side um iran basically uh yells at israel a lot and they yell death to israel blah 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 and they also fight against israel by by sending a whole bunch of weapons to uh hezbollah which is a lebanese uh shia militia lebanese arab shia militia in in Le um israel's northern border and hamas hamas is sunni uh but they're but they're sort of an iranian client because everyone else abandoned them so now it's basically just a proxy war of Iran attacking Israel through these two militias that it funds and that it gives weapons to. And Iran has some fairly fancy weapons, you know, as we've seen in, in Ukraine uh, with the uh, Shahed drones. Have you, do you know those? No. Oh, it's like a, a Shahed is like a cheap little drone. It has a, it has the engine of a lawnmower. Um, it's like this big, it's, it's, um, it has a little camera on it and it just sort of flies forever because it's got this little put putting lawnmower engine. It flies very slow, but it goes for a very long way. And then when, you know, when, uh, it sees something like when you tell it to drop on something, it just like drops and then bombs it. And it's, it's very effective. It's easy to shoot down, but it's really, really cheap. So you can just launch like thousands of them. And so Russia just launches thousands of them. And so those are Iranian, uh, furnished. Iran is furnishing Russia with weapons. Iran has a various other uh, weapons that they've developed for warfare in the region that they gave to the Houthis, which is another of their many, many proxies throughout the region. The Houthi militia in Yemen, uh, which was basically this ragtag militia that Iran armed and that then won the Yemeni civil war and even defeated Saudi Arabia's military in some clashes uh, directly. So Iran is very, very good at choosing proxies. Um, the Shia tend to be tougher than the Sunnis, um, gen not always, but generally speaking, in the clashes in the region. Um, the Sunnis definitely are like the, the um, they're more numerous, but they are generally militarily weaker. Uh, the, the history of that is that the Sunnis could defeat Iran when they had Turkey, because Turkey could, could beat up Iran, because Turkey was very effective, basically like a highly militarized, technologized uh, European state, really. And, uh, and could, could beat Iran in a one-on-one -on -one battle, but, um, and often did, but without Turkey on their side, the Arab Sunni Arab countries are not as powerful and, um, they, they have a lot of people, but they don't have a lot of, um, military power. So Iran has all these proxies, the Houthis, uh, you know, Hezbollah, Hamas, the, you know, Iraqi Shia, um, uh, the Syrian government, just all these proxies. And, um, and so this is this Cold War that's been waged in the Middle East for really since like 1979, but, but um, uh, you know, more intensely since the Iraq War destabilized the region. You know, America bears some of the, some of the blame for all this too, because we, we really destabilized the region with our invasion of Iraq. Um, but then in more recent years, America has been trying to play the peacemaker, even under Trump, um, they tried to play the peacemaker. There was this thing called the Abraham Accords, which is a, you know, sort of a pretentious name. But then um, the idea was that they were going to make peace between uh, Arab states and Israel. And they did manage to get a few uh, to make peace. So UAE, uh, Sudan, a um, couple of others, I think. And then uh, 
Saudi Arabia, though, that was the biggie. Saudi Arabia was really the the final sort of one that would uh, that would um, if if Saudi Arabia made peace with Israel, that would mean that all the the main Sunni states had made peace with Israel, and and they were about to do that. So Biden was sort of you know he didn't call it the Abraham Accords because that's Trump's thing, but but as in so many areas, Biden continued Trump's policies um, because you know Trump Trump didn't always make stupid policies. He just sold them really badly with his inflammatory style. Um, he did some policies that were actually kind of smart, like, uh, you know, vaccine stuff, China stuff with China and, and the Abraham Accords, like, you know, making peace in the region was probably a good idea. And the, um, the Sunnis used to be very hardcore, uh, pro-Palestinian, but in recent years, they saw that the Palestinians, the Palestinians basically get egged on by a whole bunch of people from outside Palestine that tell them to like, never give up, never surrender, kill all the Israelis, which includes Western leftists, various Muslim brotherhood people from like Pakistan or someplace, and then uh, Iran. Right. And so, so you've got all these people egging the Palestinians on saying, go kill, destroy, kill, kill. And then like, and then they're like, yes, we will kill. We will destroy, even though they're impoverished, it's really bad for them. And, and they're not, you know, I mean, this was an effective attack. But Israel ultimately will kill more Palestinians than the Palestinians killed of the Israelis, and um, and so they're they're you know they always in the end they always get beat up, and they just keep attacking, keep attacking, um, and and they keep sort of vowing to eliminate the state of Israel entirely and ethnic cleanse all the Israelis, or or kill, and and this attack makes it seem like okay you wouldn't just peacefully expel any of these people you'd they they want to genocide the Israelis. And that's, that's clear that that's what they want to do. And, you know, 600 people, that's not going to destroy the state, the population of Israel. That's not a genocide, but it shows genocidal intent. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Sam Harris went viral this week or this weekend. I don't know if you saw it for a statement he made, which he was basically making the analogy of, hey, um, you think Israel is bad. But, you know, for occupying um, sort of the Palestinian territories or, or what perceived them to be. Um, but if the situation was reversed and Israel was the in the Palestinian situation, based on how the Palestinian sort of uh, leadership has been acting, they would do far worse. Um, and, and, and you know, based on their uh, statements and actions. And thus, you can't really create a moral equivalence um, in terms of uh intent any any thoughts on that you know they it, it it's a question of like what what are you asking right it's um are you asking who is more savage the israelis or the palestinians well it's the palestinians they are more barbaric and savage but barbarity and savagery is not the only thing we should care about right we should care about effect so when we think of history's greatest monsters like paul pot was the most barbaric and savage Right. You can go to Cambodia and see the quote unquote magic trees, which are polished shiny by the number of babies' brains that were beat out against those trees. Um, Paul Pot killed, Paul Pot built very nice geometrical um, fields of skulls, bleached skulls. He, um, it was the most psychotic thing that I've ever heard of or seen. Um, in some ways, it was even more psychotic than the Holocaust because it was just so, um, like it, you know, killing. it was it was just the weirdest shit you ever saw. 
and it killed 25% of the population of Cambodia. And yet we remember Mao as a greater monster than Pol Pot because Mao had the effect of killing 30 million people while Pol Pot, Pol Pot killed like a million and a half or something. Um, you know, Mao killed a lot more people than Pol Pot. And Mao was insane too. He was just insane in a slightly different way. Um, but effects matter. And we want to create this world in which countries and people don't conquer and occupy and dominate other countries because that's the kind of thing Russia's doing in Ukraine. That's, you know, that's, that's bad, right? We don't want conquest. We want a world where, where everybody has their own country and your borders are inviolable and you can do, you know, like you're safe from invasion and conquest and territory and everybody has self-determination. We want that world. And Israel violates that world by, by dominating the Palestinians and, and occupying uh, these areas, treating these people as, as non-citizens with no rights. And in Gaza, they just blockade, right? They've blockaded Gaza. That's essentially an interstate conflict, even though Gaza hasn't formally declared independence. It's essentially an independent state. It runs itself. Um, Israel doesn't run it. Israel doesn't have anybody there. They just like block off its airspace and waterways. Um, but uh, um, so it's basically a blockade. But in the West Bank, Israel has implemented this regime where Palestinians, and there's 3 million people in the West Bank. That's a lot. 3 million people is a lot of people. Um, 3 million people in the West Bank are unable to move around. They're unable to like, you know, they don't have freedom of movement. They don't have citizenship anywhere. They don't have rights. Um, you know, they're, they're, it, it's not just their borders are controlled by the army. It's like they what land they can have gets gets parceled out to them by the Israeli army. Um, they are subject to being shot if they, you know, seem disruptive or basically like you throw a rock at an Israeli soldier, they'll just shoot you. Um, and, and you, you can't see your relatives. If your relatives live in another town, you can't go see them. Your grandmother's dying in the town over. You can't go see them because there's soldiers in the way. Uh, that's horrible. That's bad. And Israel does that. And not only that, Israel is, has been supporting a settler movement to move uh, Jewish settlers um, who often are extremely religious people who refuse to even fight in the Israeli army or even recognize the state of Israel. These like religious nuts. Uh, that's not all the settlers, but that's a lot of them. Um, they, they move the settlers into the West Bank and they've been supporting the constructing these settlements. Um, which basically, you know, they take farmland and, and they take up space. They, they occupy points along roads. They're heavily armed and they're, it's basically a slow conquest. And it's not too difficult to see that the end game of that is when they get so, and the settlers have extremely high birth rates, right? These are extremely religious people who have eight kids per family. And when, and the idea is that when the settlers, um, when they're getting enough of them, Israel will simply step back, wash its hands and let the settlers ethnic cleanse the West Bank Palestinians and, and push them into Jordan. And that, you know, that's really, really bad. And, you know, would Israel intentionally massacre concerts full of Palestinians just because they hate Palestinians? No, but, you know, like when you have 3 million people who are basically um, living in a, in a, you know, giant open air prison, um, that's bad. And you're ultimately aiming to push them off their land. That's bad. That's like, you know, 
that's the hundreds of Palestinians do get killed. Like, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think it's hundreds per year in the West Bank. Um, a couple hundred, maybe. I don't remember the exact number, but like, that's really bad. People are not wrong to oppose that occupation. And I think um, the reason the United States does not more strongly oppose that occupation is because uh, honestly, they don't care that much. It's not very strategic. You know, people talk about the Israel lobby has control of the government and blah, blah, blah. I don't really think that's the case. I think that instead it's just, they don't care because it's, it's, you know, it's like, we don't care about Tibet, right? We only recently slightly decided we cared about Xinjiang, but like, really, we don't actually care. We pretend to care. Um, it's just, we are mad at China for other reasons. And, and so we, we use this human rights abuse, which is a real human rights abuse. China locked up a million people in concentration camps and re-education camps and tortured all these slave labor and whatnot. It's really bad. It is bad, but like, it's not necessarily like something we would care about if there weren't, um, uh, um, you know, other reasons to, to fight China at the time. And um, Nagorno-Karabakh, nobody even knows what that is, right? It's this area uh, that Armenia seized from Azerbaijan and that was populated by a whole bunch of ethnic Armenians. That's why Armenia conquered it. And then Azerbaijan conquered it back. And um, recently, Armenia, uh, Azerbaijan basically threatened to kill the uh, the ethnic Armenians who were living in that area, whose families had been living there forever. And 120,000 people just uprooted and fled to Armenia because they had nowhere else to go. Um, that's ethnic cleansing. That happened a week ago? One week ago. No one cares. No one even talks about it. And the you know, everyone always talks about Gaza. Everyone, because because Gaza, you know, has Hamas and they, they have the coastline, right? And it's easy for them to get weapons from Iran. And um, and so Iran ships in weapons sneakily through that coastline. Israel can't effectively blockade the whole thing. And then, um, and then Hamas gets the weapons and they get all these rockets and then they blast Israeli towns with the rockets. And that's why everyone cares about Gaza, right? And of course, the rabid leftists in America are just like, fight, Palestinians fight. So they love Hamas because Hamas is better able to fight because they have a coastline, right? The, the West Bank doesn't have a coastline. They can't fight because they don't have any weapons to fight. Um, and then, but, the, but, but Hamas can fight because they have the weapons. And, um, and so, of course, the leftists love them because all they want is just like power, 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 ha, 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 violence, ha, 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 kill. And then they're just sick people. And, um, but yeah, so, so what Israel is doing in the West Bank is really bad. And it's absolutely, we ought to stop it. The United States needs to lean on Israel harder to stop it and to dismantle most of these settlements. I don't know if they can dismantle them all. You know, the settlements are illegal under the, the Oslo Accords. They've been declared illegal internationally. They're, um, when people say it's settler colonialism, they're right about that. That's what it is. Uh, and so just, you know, get those people out of there. Get those settlers out of there. The United States should be leaning on Israel much harder to do that. That said, I don't think that's necessarily what Hamas really cares about. I don't think Hamas wants to stop the process of settlement in the West Bank. Hamas doesn't even care about the West Bank. Hamas had a, fought a civil war uh, against Fatah, the, the, the party militia that controls the West Bank, Palestinians, it, you know, and defeated them. It defeated them. And um, uh, Hamas doesn't necessarily care about those settlements. Hamas wants to conquer all of Israel, kill all the Israelis, right? So Hamas doesn't necessarily care. They just want to kill, kill, kill um and fight but um 
you know, someone needs to someone needs to lean on the Israelis to stop that that settlement of the West Bank. And I don't know who's going to do it because it, it, it's the United States' job. We should be doing it. We, you would concede probably that the situation with Israel is is unique and that there's not really an analog like it where the underdog wants to kind of exterminate the the over sort of, you know, the the more powerful one and the more powerful one is um, much more lenient or, or like it, it seems like there's tough. It's tough to make an analogy with any other kind of oppressor and oppressed. So when people try to say apartheid or something, it doesn't quite doesn't quite compute. Is that fair? Uh, apartheid is a fairly good analogy for what's going on in the West Bank. So apartheid was, you know, where you would basically white South Africans kept black South Africans like penned in, in various like areas and, you know, wouldn't let them move around and blah, blah, blah. And that's fairly similar to what Israel's doing in the West Bank. Um, now, many of the leftists who use the word apartheid throw it around and they say that what Israel's doing in Gaza is apartheid. That's wrong. That's bullshit. It's just a blockade. You know, blockades are very old strategy of war. Um, you could say it's a, a bad blockade that they should cancel it, but, you know, um, but it's it's not apartheid. And Gaza is in no way part of the, the state of Israel. But if you look at the areas controlled by by West Bank Palestinians and West Bank versus the Israeli army, if you look at the amount of land that 3 million Palestinians occupy in the West Bank, it's very small. They're very, you know, crowded in. And the lack of freedom of movement, the fact that if you're an Israeli settler, you get to move around however you like. If you are a, uh, you know, West Bank Palestinian, you have no freedom of movement, no real rights. You're not a citizen of anywhere. Where, what country are you a citizen of? If you're a West Bank Palestinian, you're a stateless person, you know, the, so, so apartheid is not a bad analogy for that. I think it, apartheid has a moral valence that doesn't exactly apply here, given that the underdog in, in this case wants is, is, is or many of them are dedicated to exterminating uh, Israel, or at least the, the leadership uh, and thus, uh, and then also the uh, apartheid thing doesn't seem to resonate because uh it's the best situation for them uh you know given uh, given the alternatives of going to uh one of the neighboring countries that claim to be um sort of family with them or or, or related to them that don't even want them in the, in the first place so while there might be some technical um you know similarities it, it, it seems that the moral valence of apartheid doesn't uh, doesn't apply here at least at least in my opinion if you're a Palestinian, what are your options, right? You could stay in the West Bank or you could go to maybe some other, I don't know, Egypt or some other you know, neighboring yeah, country. Yeah, you leave. Yeah, but your right, life you leave. is worse. They don't want them, right? The Egyptians don't, don't they're not taking them in. That's sort of one I mean, you could, yeah. you probably could move to Jordan. I think Jordan will like be, hur, hur, nur, nur, do you really want right. to hurt a bird? But then like, ultimately Jordan has so many Palestinians already that like a, a few more isn't, you know, maybe if like a million Palestinians tried to move to Jordan, they'd implement some type of border control. But I don't think so. I right. think you can move out. Israel will let you move out. But there are opportunities you want to like leave. better but in the West Bank than, than isn't that called Bank. ethnic cleansing? Like if you, if you make conditions bad enough that people have to leave that, and, and you make specifically bad enough for one ethnicity. So that ethnicity has to leave that's ethnic cleansing. And so like if, if, so far, not many West Bank Palestinians have moved out recently, but if if Israel pressured them all to leave, that's just ethnic cleansing. I don't understand how that's not that. Like, so that's, you know, apartheid is a decent analogy, but if if um, if instead of 
if instead of simply penning them in, Israel was like, okay, now everybody go leave. That's ethnic cleansing. And um, in apartheid, it's like if you were a black South African, you know, you if Botswana would let you in, you could probably move to Botswana. And Botswana is a nice country. Um, you know, Namibia is a nice country. Uh, these are these are you know decently wealthy countries with decent standards of living, very peaceful places. And so you could move. You know, you could probably move there. But then you're you're leaving your home because someone conquered you and oppressed you because of your ethnicity. You and your family have lived there for generations upon generations. And now these soldiers come in and they take away all your freedoms and then tell you to move. Like that's bad. That's, that's something that the international system should not allow. Yeah. And there's no way we should have allowed this, this, um, this settlement process accelerated around the turn of the century. We should never have allowed it. Um, it was in response to the, um, one of the intifadas, it was a, you know, an uprising, um, in the West bank. And there was this, th this was the last big Palestinian attack on, on Israel was in, um, you know, Hamas up till now has done relatively more minor stuff, but the West bank Palestinians like Fatah was really hardcore. They had two big uprisings called intifadas. I think that just means uprising. I'm not sure. Um, but it's like something it's, it's, it's an, it's a, you know, attack. And, um, and in the early two thousands, they really, uh, the, the West bank Palestinians really went hard against Israel and attacked a lot and, um, and managed to kill a lot of Israelis. And the Israelis responded by basically with, with the system they now call apartheid, uh, you know, Israel, Israelis responded by basically sending the army into the West bank, establishing all the checkpoints, taking away freedom of movement, blah, 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 turning it from before, you know, West bank was pretty much just like a Palestinian zone where Palestinians lived, like Israel would just control the borders. Right. Then after that, that I think it was the second intifada um, in the in the early 2000s, then Israel really cracked down. It built a border wall um, and, you know, and. Um, unlike uh, the U.S.-Mexico wall, it's highly effective. Well, the U.S.-Mexico wall is like slightly effective at slowing down immigration. It's somewhat effective, but but this wall is manned and they will shoot you if they yeah. see you coming. And. Um, and so they did all those things in response to that intifada, that uprising. And they may may do something with Gaza similar now. I don't know. Um, it would involve a ground invasion, massive battles, a lot of war, because Hamas is better armed than Fatah was. Fatah mostly had like a bunch of like AKs and RPG, maybe some RPGs and like whatever. But then a lot of their attacks were just suicide bombings. Uh, Suicide bombings have kind of gone out of style largely um, because because weapons, Iran is shipping decent weapons to Hamas. Hamas is much better armed than Fatah was. Yeah. And if Israel is going to go in and sort of, uh, you know, carve up Gaza City into districts and, and implement a strict regime of controls in Gaza the way it has in the West Bank, if Israel is going to just do that to you know, do that. Um, that's going to be very difficult. It's going to involve a lot of Israeli casualties. Hezbollah might jump into the war and then Israel will be fighting a multi-front war against two Iranian supplied militias. And it will be, you know, it will be intense. It will be a big war, but, but the, the world is getting more warlike and America's ability to lean in and jump in and stop a lot of these wars has diminished due to, you know, the waning American power, even if we wanted to, like we, we yeah. couldn't, jump in as easily because we're, we're occupied elsewhere. There's, there's, 
there's a few points I want to get into. First, talk more about the Saudi Arabia alliance in terms of why Saudi Arabia turned or say more about why, why it was turning and what does this uh, sort of uprising um, mean for for that agreement or, or, or relations in the Middle East in general? Right. Well, so Saudi Arabia, um, you know, they, they've been pressured hard by Iran. Uh, Yemen is on their border and the history of, of Saudi Arabia is that Yemen, you know, you, Saudi Arabia looks big and Yemen looks small, but actually Yemen has this very fertile, like little area in the, uh, in the West of Yemen, which, uh, historically would sometimes even conquer what we now know as Saudi Arabia. And so Saudi Arabia is very scared of Yemen, um, getting a hostile force on, uh, you know, in control of Yemen on their border. And there's these, uh, Houthis, the, the, the Shiite militia, that's one of Iran's extremely effective proxies. And um, the, uh, the Houthi militia fought in a war in Yemen, you know, in the, in the Arab Spring, the, the Sunni president of Yemen was overthrown and the Houthi militia is like, okay, we're gonna take over now. And Saudi Arabia tried to fight them and it tried to fight them through proxies and then it tried to fight them directly. And they basically used, uh, the Houthis pioneered a lot of the drone techniques we're now seeing in Ukraine with uh, Iranian supplied drones. Um, they were attacking, you know, using long range Iranian drones to attack Saudi, uh, you know, um, events in deep in Saudi Arabia. And that was astonishing. And if you watch that, if you paid attention that you knew drones were going to change war, if you watch the Houthis, but then Saudi Arabia is basically losing to Iran in the Cold War. Iraq, you know, in Iraq, the United States overthrew a Shia, uh, um, a Sunni dictator and uh, basically replaced him with with Shia because Shia are the majority in Iraq. So there, uh, Saudi Arabia lost to Iran because of the United States. In Yemen, the power of the Houthis meant that Saudi Arabia again lost uh, to Iran. And, um, you know, in, um, in Syria, thanks to Russia's intercession on behalf of Bashar Assad, Assad, who's the ally of Iran, won. In Lebanon, the Sunni militias were effectively defeated by the Shia militia, which is Hezbollah. Uh, and then the, again, Iran won. So each of these cold war battles, the Saudi Saudis were just absolutely losing the cold war against Iran in the middle East and they needed more allies. And so the idea was to get Israel on their side, you know, to get more allies because the Saudis are not very effective at fighting. Um, they mostly just dig up oil and sell it. That's their deal. Um, they're not very, a, a very effective state. Uh, they're this sprawling royal bureaucracy, this sprawling royal family that just, like monarchy bullshit. It's very antiquated. And um, so the Saudis needed allies. And so, they, you know, that was the real idea behind the Abraham Accords was that the Saudis would get Israel an, as an ally for their Cold War against Iran because Israel doesn't like Iran either. Right. And Israel has high technology. They've got some nuclear weapons hidden somewhere. They've got, you know, nice fighter jets and, and whatnot. And so Saudi is like, OK, let's get Iran on our side. Right. Who else are they going to get on their side? America's withdrawing from the Middle East. Um, they could try to get Turkey, but, you know, Turkey's doing its own thing. It doesn't have a lot of appetite to fight Iran right now. Um, Russia's on Iran's side because Russia's having problems in Ukraine and Iran is helping build them out by giving them a bunch of weapons. So there's really who, who are the Saudis going to turn to uh, China, maybe. Um, but China's allied with Iran, too, you know, so so really the Saudis are running out of available allies. And so Israel was a good option for them, even though it's small. It's it's pretty high tech and um, got a lot of weapons. And so uh, the Saudis wanted to make friends with Israel. But now um, the Saudis 
are very insecure because really it's just a, this monarchical royal family that kind of dominates their people in this very antiquated system. Uh, you know, it's um, the, the king and king's family just rule everything. And so, uh, you know, they don't, they, they, their legitimacy is always in question. If you recall, one of Osama bin Laden's demands uh, was the, the overthrow of the House of Saud. Everyone thinks those guys are pretty corrupt, you know, pretty not, not great at running a country. Uh, they have tons of oil money and they can just splash money on everything, but that's all they really know how to do. And so um, if they still, uh, you know, recognize Israel and become friendly toward Israel at a time when Israel is bombing the shit out of a bunch of Sunni Arabs, you know, in Gaza, that will really weaken the Saudis' claim to be the leader of the Sunni world, the Sunni Arab world. And that will further weaken their position in this Cold War that they're already kind of losing. So this is really bad for Saudi Arabia. Their, you know, Hamas's action has kind of robbed them of their last chance at a, a you know, a new regional ally. Um, and of course, that's Iran's doing, right? Iran supplies stuff to Hamas. So Iran is like, hey, Hamas, go, do, go attack. It was, it was coordinated, right? Like, and, it, and it was effective because Saudis basically canceled this. They were about to, rec everyone knew they were about to recognize Israel and make peace with them. And now they, they're holding off. They're canceling it. And maybe they'll try again in like two years or something. Israel is going to retaliate. You, you have an idea that you should talk about, about the three, three-state solution. Um, right. I worry Which that- I think is not going to happen soon. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a little, it, like, it feels like there's never been more support for Israel retaliation or sympathy than there. Like, it feels like over the next week or whatever, sure. there's going to be license for Israel to do, to go above and beyond perhaps what it's ever done, um, or at least in, in, in a long time. And my prediction is that they're going to take it. I don't know if that means annexing sort of whatever they can annex. Like, we'll see. What do you think? We'll see, because Israel's going to have a tough time here. Israel, like we assume that Israel has overwhelming force and they can just beat these guys, but that's not necessarily true. Um, as, as I've said, the technology has shifted dramatically. So drones can now take out tanks. Drones can now take out Humvees easily. Drones can now spot stuff coming from a long way away. So you don't get surprised. Um, drones are really good. And, uh, Iran makes a lot of drones and they give them to Hamas and Hamas has a lot of drones. And they give them to Hezbollah. So if he Israel taking on Hezbollah and Hamas in an age when those guys have the new the new you know weapons that are very effective against like the big expensive stuff Israel has, like Israel could have a tough time. And Israel fought Hezbollah in the two thousands. They fought a little border war. It was brief. Um, Israel basically lost to Hezbollah. Um, it wasn't a decisive loss. But um, Israel rolled a bunch of tanks forward and Hezbollah sort of pasted them with a bunch of really good anti-tank missiles. And if you saw that happen, you could predict that a bunch of tanks were going to get pasted by anti-tank missiles like the Javelin in the Ukraine war. It was similar to Ukraine in that Israel rolled the tanks in and Hezbollah would like shot the tanks with missiles. And um, Hezbollah has also dug tunnels. They've, they've massively dug a whole bunch of tunnels. Uh, so then they're very good at, um, at sort of like telling where the, where the Israelis are coming and also hiding. So Israel can't bombard them. So Israel fighting against Hezbollah and Hamas, a pitched battle on their own territory, you know, trying to go on the offensive would be at a dramatic disadvantage, uh, compared to where they were 
10 or 20 years ago. Um, Israel might still be able to win, uh, but it, it's going to be a lot harder than people think. It's not like Israel just has overwhelming force and can just like whip these guys, you know, back and forth whenever they want. These guys have fearsome weaponry. These militias have fearsome weaponry because it's the age of the drone and it's the age of the anti-tank missile. And right. It's, it's the age of that. Um, the, the drone and the javelin have ruled the, uh, they don't have javelins. They have something like that. Um, that they, those weapons have ruled the battlefield in Ukraine and they're why no one can seem to do any offensives, right? Russia can't take any more territory, but Ukraine is having a lot of trouble taking back its territory. They're having to go basically back to World War I style and just infiltrate trenches with a bunch of dudes. You know, that's what Ukraine is trying to do while having artillery duels up top, right? Artillery duels plus like infiltrating trenches with dudes. That's World War I. That's World War I tactics, man. It's like the... the we got rid of World War I tactics with planes, which could do massive bombing, and with tanks, which could roll through defenses. Tanks are done. Sorry to all the military experts who say I'm an idiot and I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, and combined arms offensives still work, and you just haven't seen tanks in the right role, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, tanks are done. Um, tanks will be a rear supporting role. The, the number of handheld weapons that tanks are impervious to is shrinking by the day. Like, yes, a tank will still protect you against an AK-47, but like handheld missiles destroy tanks now. That's done. Tank costs a million dollars and it's really slow and bulky, right? Like a, a, a little javelin costs like thousands of dollars and it's like not bulky, right? It's like, it's a few pounds. You just carry it. It's a handheld thing. You can just shoot down a tank. That's done. Done. You know, tanks are over and you can do it from a very long way away. Like farther than the tank can see you maybe. And then... um <laughs> There's short-range anti-tank stuff too, but that's that's been around for a long time. Um, so, like, uh, the other thing that broke the World War I pattern was planes, right? You can do massive bombing, just bomb, bomb, bomb. Israel has the planes to do that. They can do that. Are you going to do that in a city, in a populated area? Gaza has 2 million people. It's a, it's a decently large city. Are you going to bomb that city flat and kill 100,000 people with bombing? At that point, you know, Hamas, yeah, Hamas killed a few hundred Israel, innocent Israelis at music festival and whatnot. Um, but then you just pasted a whole city in response. Like the, the people of Gaza are effectively human shields for Hamas. And so Israel has the ability to destroy them from the air. Although even then, uh, Iran is like doing that to Hezbollah. Hezbollah probably has some surface to air missiles that, um, you know, ultimately were of Russian make, but then Iran... Uh, probably has shipped them a number of surface-to-air missiles. Yeah. And so so Israel's going to have a tough time here. It's not just Israeli restraint. What's your prediction? I don't I don't have a prediction. I think, uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen with these people. Yeah. Um, I mean, Israel's going to attack. Israel's going to have a tougher time. I do predict that Israel's going to have a tougher time militarily than people think, taking out Hamas, especially if they have to fight, if Hezbollah attacks too, and they have to fight Hezbollah. But um, I think that they're going to have a very tough time with Hamas, tougher than people think. If you see Hamas, how Hamas like use drones to destroy that tank at the border um, and destroy the like border guard, the checkpoints, whatever. Hamas is watching the war in Ukraine. Every Ukraine video, Americans ignore the war in Ukraine and just like whatever. Hamas watches every Ukraine video that happens and they learn, right? Israel watches them too. The IDF watches them too. Our military is watching them too. 
all those all those you know drone videos there's a million videos like ukraine is the most videoized war in history and um but they they've learned and so israel is going to have a very tough time with them um most of the the really dramatic things israel could do to break uh to break hamas which is massive shelling like what the russians do massive bombing like what the americans do both of those things will just lead to untold civilian casualties in gaza maybe israel will be willing to do that i doubt it what other choice does it have i don't know um i think they'll probably try to go in on the ground without you know with limited bombing with some like targeted they'll bomb like this or that place where they think hamas guys are hiding but they won't just like indiscriminately shell and bomb large areas uh israel still has a lot of artillery you know they could they could just uh launch all these shells they could do what what russia does and just paste gaza right like mariupol that's gone like bakhmut that city is no more like um kharkiv was like half destroyed by russian just massive artillery barrages they could do the russian thing um russia gets away with it because people are too scared to like push back on russia israel would be morally condemned and would lose the moral high ground but I, so i don't know i don't know what they're gonna do um i think what they're gonna do is they're gonna try to go in on the ground and they're gonna encounter some nasty surprises like in 2006 i think they fought hezbollah or maybe it was seven i think it was six anyway they're um they're going to encounter nasty surprises on the ground. They're going to get a bunch of their tanks pasted. They're going to take higher casualties than they thought. Hamas is going to be harder to find. They're dug in. They have tunnel systems. They'll be difficult to find. Um, they're not necessarily just staying in the buildings that are rumored to be their headquarters. They're in, the, they're in a tunnel. They're in a bunker, right? They have prepared defenses under Gaza. They rule Gaza. They've been preparing for years. And so, so it's going to be very difficult for Israel to root them out. We'll, um, we might know in next week. Um, hmm. but all of this, all of this is downstream of one thing, which is the waning of American power. Right. Let's talk about that. All of this is, is, is really just about America in the end. Um, so you tie it together. United States. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Pax Americana. Right. In, um, in 1996, if you pulled this shit, America would just help stomp you. Um, in fact, in 1973, the, the Israel was losing the Yom Kippur War before America sent them some weapons, and with those weapons, they won the Yom Kippur War. They probably would have won anyway, but it would have been a lot harder. America does not have the weaponry it once had. In 1995 or six, we could make almost a million artillery shells a month. Now we make about uh, um, 30,000 a month. So we make one one thirtieth as much artillery shells as we used to. Our defense industrial base is shriveled. Critical components are made by like one little company in Iowa run by some like 72-year-old guy with no replacement on the horizon. We, or, we just assume we'll order all the parts from China for our, everything on our military, but we can't really do that anymore. We don't have the defense industrial base. We can't build ships like China builds 200 ships to every one of our ships, I think is the recent estimate I saw. America is weakening. We also have massive fiscal battles. We have, you know, a big deficit with rising interest rates and there's pressure for austerity. And, and it used to be that Republicans would fight for defense spending increases and the Democrats would, would fight to cut defense spending. Now the Republicans want to cut defense spending too, because they think the military is woke, right? So they want to cut defense. The Republicans don't like the army anymore. And the left doesn't like the army. Only the like center left likes the army anymore in America. Um, and even then they're a little, the, even the center left will occasionally like Matt Iglesias will say, cut military spending. 
you know, Judd Legum movie, cut military spending. And, um, and these are center left guys. Yeah. So then, so America's military power is dramatically weakened and we still have some military power. We have a, we still have a big military. We still have, you know, a lot of stuff, uh, just, you know, um, but we're focused to some degree on Ukraine, but, but it's, you know, of course the, the right wingers will be like, we're doing everything to Ukraine instead of preparing for blah, blah. No, it's, it's mostly Taiwan. Like we're, we're getting ready to fight China over Taiwan in a war that would be very difficult for us to win given China's productive capacity. Um, we're reserving a lot of our weapons. We're sending a little bit to Ukraine and then we are reserving most of our weapons for Taiwan. And we are rapidly retooling our military strategy from counterinsurgency, which is what we did during the war on terror, where we basically just like went around and asymmetrically fought a bunch of little Taliban guys and whoever, ISIS, I don't know. But then we're retooling from that to um, fighting China, fighting a great power competitor. We do not have the bandwidth, the money, the production, or any of these things to go help Israel in a major war against Hezbollah and Hamas. We do not have that. Plus, it's not strategically important anymore. You know, like um, oil is getting less important. Now we're basically oil independent because of fracking. And electric cars are reducing the need for oil anyway. And other alternative sources of oil like Venezuela, Nigeria, whoever have emerged. And Saudi Arabia is just, you know, Saudi Arabia has sort of hit the limits of its own production. It's not really the swing producer it once was. It can't just like ramp up production massively whenever it wants anymore because they've, they've tapped too much of their super easy oil. Um, and the Middle East isn't that important to us anymore. Also, we got burned by Middle Eastern conflict, right? Remember the Iraq war? Like we won that war. Like we defeated everybody. We swept our enemies from the field. We defeated Saddam. We defeated the Shia militias. We defeated the Sunni militias. We defeated ISIS. We defeated everybody. We installed our proxies. We made them officially a democracy and we blah, blah, blah. And we made them our proxy. So Iraq will never threaten us ever again. And then we left. And everyone thinks Iraq was a big loss. Everyone think we lost, thinks we lost that war because ultimately we didn't get anything from it. We got no benefits from that war. And that was certain the day we started the war. Like in that sense, we lost it the day we began. But we didn't lose the war in any traditional sense. We won it and it was a Pyrrhic victory because it, was, it didn't get us anything. And so as a result, we are disengaging from the Middle East. That experience has burned us. We're disengaging from the Middle East because oil is less important, especially Saudi Arabia as a swing producer. And because um, we got burned you know, in Iraq. The, the irony of Iraq is that Saddam helped keep the peace between Sunnis and, and Shias and provided a regional counterbalance to Iran. Yes. If you think taking out Saddam was dumb, you're right. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, so the only reason we fought him in 91 was because he threatened Saudi Arabia. Um, but anyway, the point is that we're not, we're not getting involved here. You know, we'll send Israel some thoughts and prayers, right? And then the leftists will send them death wishes. And then everyone else will send them thoughts and prayers. And that's all we're going to do. We're going to sit there because it's one more war that we can't afford to get in. And, you know, Armenia, Azerbaijan, like Armenia had sort of tried to suck up to us and turn to us as like the alternative protector now that Russia's screwed itself. But we're not going to help them either because we don't have the bandwidth. Serbia is now massing troops, planning to march on Kosovo, which only gained quasi-independence because we bombed Serbia in 1999 and basically told Serbia to back up, right? And ensured Kosovo's quasi-independence. We recognize them and a lot of countries don't recognize Kosovo's independence. 
like China and Russia don't recognize it. But anyway, Serbia is massing troops on the border because America is not going to stop them because we're busy elsewhere. Right. Um, all over the world, the stabilizing threat of force, the threat of force that, that America could maintain um, is evaporating because America is occupied. America is weaker than before and we're occupied. And so those, those things mean that Pax Americana is done. Now, does that mean the world is about to erupt into like a new nightmare, or like welcome to the jungle era of war? Maybe, maybe not, because there's other factors that also could weigh on this. So there's a, still a lot more democracies around the world than there used to be, um, maybe about half the countries in the world. Um, there's still um, capitalism, trade, that may exert a dampening effect. There's still lower fertility rates, which means there's fewer like young men to just throw away to die in a big war. Um, countries are generally richer than before and maybe more, you know, maybe just want to sit on their ass and like play some video games instead of going to fight for real. Um, cause they're fat and happy. There's a lot of that stuff, right? Um, if Israel had wanted Hamas to stop attacking them, by the way, they would have made Gaza really rich because Gaza is one of the poorest places on earth. Um, it's, it's poorer than Ethiopia because of Israel's blockade. Um, making Gaza rich would make the Gazans, you know, Hamas stop fighting Israel because like they would rule over something over an economic land of plenty, but they're not because Israel's blockading them. So Israel's really dumb here. You know, they should have just made Gaza rich. They should have let Gaza get rich and the West Bank get rich. They should have let the Palestinians get a lot of money and just redirected as much money as they could toward those guys. But they're stupid. The Israelis were stupid. Isn't there a risk that they would have used that just to annihilate Israel in terms, like, you know, to a smaller scale? We, money? We gave, uh, well, no. Like, we, we helped China liberalize. Video games? I, I, see, I, I see that there's one path where they could have got fat and happy, et cetera. But isn't there another path where, like, they're really about it, about it. Like, they really want to annihilate Israel. Like, couldn't they have, like, taken the money or you know, you leverage that money. Like, you know, Bin Laden's not a poor guy. They would have had to buy the weapons and Iran is giving them weapons for free. They don't need money to get the weapons. But now all they get is weapons. Give them money. Yeah, they could maybe try to buy weapons from France or something. Maybe Russia. Like, but, the, but Israel would still maintain a blockade. Israel should have, you know, just maintained a military blockade of them or like a no-fly zone or whatever, but just allowed tourism to Gaza opened, you know, the Gaza borders, allowed people to come in and out, allowed tourism, directed manufacturing investment, allowed Turkey to like open special economic zones to manufacture stuff in Gaza. Um, basically just done everything except let weapons in. If Israel were smart, right? If Israel were smart, but they're not. Um, they're dumb and they consistently screw themselves. I mean, Hamas is dumb too. Like all these guys are dumb right? Iran is dumb. Like these, they, they shouldn't be doing all these proxy wars. Like those don't actually help Iran nor, and people are like, well, they're a theocracy. They're religiously motivated. You just don't understand how deep their belief of blah, 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 blah. There's nothing in Shia Islam that says you've got to start a bunch of proxy wars all over the goddamn Middle East. There's nothing about that. You're supposed to sit there and wait for the 12th Imam to like come and like save the world, right? You're not, and, and while you hit yourself on the back, you know, with a flail. That's like Shia Islam does not tell you to go like conquer the world with proxy wars. Like, and Shia traditionally in the Middle East have been very quiet and peaceful. They have not started. There's been tons of Shia in the Middle East since forever, since like Ali was around. And, you know, that's the guy that Shia think was the proper successor to the prophet. Um, and then 
there have been Shia around and they didn't fight. You even had Shia dynasties. You had like the, 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 um, anyway, there were, there were Shia dynasties in Egypt, elsewhere. Um, it was fine. Like there was no like Shia Sunni civil war. You didn't, none of them acted like Iran. Iran is just, is just, um, you know, acting out for no good reason, right? There's no good reason for Iran to be doing what it's doing. It's just sort of running on autopilot with this Russian-like idea of if we're not attacking, then we're losing. And it's just this, this idea that they have to... So, so all these people are dumb. Like, I don't mean dumb as in their low IQ. I mean they're dumb as in they're acting unwisely and they are used to a world of war and a world of aggression. And it is a... European countries used to be the exact same thing. Remember World War I? Why did all these, like, you know, the genetic elite of Europe blah, with all these nice mustaches and uniforms and blah, blah, why did they go why did they launch a war that would consume their entire young generation and destroy their empires and bring all their empires down and wreck their nations and destroy the legitimacy for their monarchies and just annihilate european power in world war one because they were dumb because they were used to this aggressive world where you just have to fight 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 war 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 all the time the middle east is in that situation now it's just israel hamas hezbollah syria yemen Iran, obviously, um, and all these guys are just, you know, Libya, even UAE to some degree are just dumb. They're stuck in this mindset of fight, 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 fight. And my friend who was a, a he was a protest leader in Iran. He was in the green movement. Uh, he was thrown in jail and tortured by the, you know, revolutionary guard in Iran. And I was like, why are they doing this? You know, I discuss Middle Eastern stuff and he'd just be like, dude, it's the Middle East, dude, it's the Middle East. And what he meant was that there was just this presumption that war was what you had to do, that that was the, that was your business. That's what you get up and do in the morning is war. And they haven't gotten out of that mindset yet. When I say they're dumb, that's what I mean. The Middle East needs to get out of the mindset of war and into the mindset of making money through something other than digging, you know, fossil fuel out of the ground. Like they need to actually get, a, you know, real economies going. And they're not in that mindset yet. They're still in this mindset of like, war conquer death how's that the <laughs> i think that's good to to wrap for now i, I think the, the piece that you end your the, the rant that you end your piece with is is this idea that hey for decades people have criticized america for being its world's police uh but it turns out perhaps america kept peace better than we think and um let's see how you know we wanted america to, to or, or a bunch of people have wanted america to stop being the world's police and for us to enter this multipolar world and well now we have it and then and let's see how we like it yeah right um the world is fundamentally an ungoverned place there is no world government stability is kept has always been kept by hegemons or hegemonic coalitions that set the rules and that overall smaller powers into not fighting whether those hegemons were brutal ones like the Mongols or, uh, you know, relatively somewhat friendly ones like America and its allies in the post-World post War II period. Um, you, you know, we've never found a solution to global security except for hegemons. And now we don't have a hegemon and there's no bringing American hegemony back. Okay, we're not just going to say, okay, well, now we think nicely about it. We've changed our minds. We go back on all the anti-American stuff that we said in 2010. It doesn't matter. It's done. It was going to end anyway. 
right? But it, it ended sooner than it had to, but it was going to end anyway, and it's done, and it's not coming back. And maybe someday America will be part of a new ruling coalition with India and the EU and Japan and, you know, Indonesia and Brazil and all these people. Maybe all the democracies can get together and reestablish another, like, world order in, like, 2060 or something like that. But it's not happening soon. And in the meantime, uh, we are, are sort of, like, back, heading back toward a jungle situation. Let's, uh, let's, let's wrap on that note. Um, Noah, this was, a, this was an intense episode, intense, uh, intense week. Um, un until next time. Yep. Until next time, man. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.